Farpoint Media, powered by Podango. This is your ADD cast. Lucky episode number 23. Welcome, everybody, to lucky episode number 23 of your ADD cast. Back behind the microphone at home, high atop the deluxe luxury townhome in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, I am Paul Fisher, and I am coming to you with yet another in a series of special episodes of the ADD cast. Today, without further ado, without, well, anything but his own special intro music, we are bringing to you someone you will know. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mr. Scott Sigler. Scott, how you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. I'm glad to have you here on the show. Thank you. Very glad to be here. You are one of the fathers of the podcast novel. You started off with EarthCore. For those of you who don't know, EarthCore was one of the first podcast novels. There's kind of a tie out there, which is why at the end of this segment, you'll hear part two of our three-part interview with Scott, Mark Jeffrey, and T. Morris. Yours was, I believe, the first podcast-only novel. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, T. Morris, who put out Moravi, and Mark Jeffrey with Pocket Independent both had their books available in stores and online. And when I put out EarthCore, it wasn't in any other format. It wasn't in book format. couldn't get it as a PDF. Etc. So the, the only way to hear my story was to tune in every week. You couldn't cheat. You couldn't download something or go buy something and peek at the end. So once you got hooked on the story, you were mine. I watched your numbers go through the roof on Podcast Alley and said, eh, I don't know what this thing is. And then uh, a couple of months after it was over, I tuned in for the first time. So uh-huh. I, I got to hear it all in a compressed space of time. I think it was like three days I listened to the whole thing. Oh, okay. It just blew my mind. Great, great, thank you. Toward the end there, I was just just waiting for the body count to go higher. (laughs) Is that one of the things that you look at when you're writing a book? Um, In a way, I put everybody in these situations, and there's there's certain tools and elements you can use to keep suspense going. And one of the best tools for that is when you put characters in danger if the reader knows that they're not going to make it out okay. You know, if you pick up a Robin Cook novel, for example, or any kind of detective novel, and your main character gets in danger, you know the main character is going to get his or her way out of that at the end. So there's not really that much, there's not really that much suspense. It's fun, it's exciting read, but you, you know what's going to happen. Like if it's a James Bond novel, you know damn well what's going to happen. What I did, what I do is I take four or five different characters, put them in a situation and then once you whack a couple of those guys, the reader never really knows what's coming next. And that's what, that's what makes that great edge of your suspense. So it's not necessarily going after a high body count. That just sort of is a side effect of the style that I write, that people get whacked. 
that for me is a big thing. I'm pretty smart, so I can sometimes see where the author is going. And if you've read a series of novels, you know that no matter how bad it gets, the main character just isn't going to get killed. With your books, nobody's safe. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's safe. You know, even what you may think is the main character may or may not make it out of it. It's a lot like um, the Lincoln Child books. I'm a huge fan of his. He's the guy who wrote Relic. And when he started out, there were different casts of characters in every book, and he had no idea how it was going to end. And then he sort of settled on two characters that he really liked and that he keeps them coming back. And now they've turned more into a, he's more like a, a mystery writer with some hard science thrown in. But, I mean, to me, the magic's just gone because I'll read one, one of his books. Like, I just read Brimstone by him. And I know no matter, you know, all the crazy situations these two guys got into, they were going to somehow find their way out of it. It really took all the, took all the fun out of the books. So that's something I'm going to avoid. You'll never know who's safe. Excellent. Totally excellent. I did notice, because I listened to EarthCore in such a compressed period of time, that the voices that you were doing for some of the characters varied throughout the course of the novel. I believe that you've taken pains in both Ancestor and in Infection, your latest podcast novel, to compensate for that. What have you been doing? Well, it's really, I, I tried, I wasn't prepared for how much work went into EarthCore to start with. So, you know, I was just pulling voices completely out of my ass as the new characters came up. It would be a new character, and I would be on the spot going, okay, I need a voice for this guy, I need a voice for this girl. So for Ancestor and Infection, I was trying to put a little bit more forethought into it and even, even practice it somewhat. <clears throat> also taking the time to go back and listen to the previous episodes, uh, how did I do that guy's voice? Okay, that's how I did it. Then I would, then it would be, so it would be consistent from one episode to the next. And then moving into infection, I've even started to apply some different vocal filters to the voices to really try and differentiate uh, certain characters. Because what I do that's different, I think, than what I've heard out of, out of uh, T and Mark and J.C. Hutchins, who writes Seven Son, is, is they read the full attribution. So if I was like, I'm going to get the fire hydrant, I said, and then I kicked in the door. The, all of those little things, the he said, she said, the descriptions of how they're saying it, like he said angrily, and I've gotten rid of all that because it just, it just doesn't make sense when you actually do character voices. You know, you don't want to do a character voice, I said, and then go back into it. it. It throws the reader off. So now that I've gotten rid of all that, you don't hear the he says and she says, etc. Um, and and a, lot of the, a lot of the style of the characters brought out in the performance of that particular part. So when you're doing that, you've you got to put a little, more, a little bit more time into the voices and make sure that the uh, reader can tell them the part. Did you benchmark the voices before you started the book? I have done that for Ancestor and for, and for Infection. I, in fact, I've, I have little, for Ancestor, there were several foreign accents, which I did in various stages of success. And I had little sample MP3s to listen to before those characters would come on. So I'd be able to sit and listen to a reference of a French woman talking and then do my attempt at a French accent. So there were benchmarks there. For Infection... It's been easier because there's my main narrative voice and then the main character's voice. I'm reading exactly like my voice. I just have dropped a lower third filter on that. So you can clearly tell the difference. When that guy comes on, there's no mistaking who that character is. So for that one, it didn't really require any kind of a benchmark. Cool. What are you planning voice-wise for your next novel? Well, Nocturnal is going to be a little bit different. Um, 
there's several human characters, as you can imagine, but it's going to be, it's a strange book. It's, uh, there's a sort of a family, if you will, or a nomenclature of monsters that are rooting around San Francisco, and they're all intelligent, and they're all different, and they all have, you know, the basic desires of, that humans have, so the regular characters, except they like to eat people. So there's a key differentiator there. And if there's anybody in your audience who likes to eat people, I don't want to offend them. I apologize. So, <laughs> um, so that that's going to be. So I'm going to have to find a way to sell monster voices, and yet they can't sound campy. And I don't want to go too over the top trying to make them sound all spooky and scary, because the purpose of Nocturnal is to present the, this group as regular individuals with their own fixed motivations, needs, wants, and desires that just happen to be diametrically opposed to the regular human characters who, who don't want to become lunch. So it'll, I'm not, I haven't quite figured that out yet, but I'll, I'll get something hooked up. It'll be sweet. Cool. Have you invested in any voice modulation software or hardware, or are you still figuring that out? I'm still figuring that out. I might look into some hardware for this one. I've been using GarageBand, some different plugins and filters in GarageBand with and, and they're they're good. They're successful. There's just very few of them to choose from, and it's, there's only so far you can push the voice in that before it starts to sound comical, which will detract from the suspense of the story. I mean, the the primary goal of everything I write is to create a structure and a story and characters that have you on the edge of your seat and make you curse at me every time the episode <laughs> ends on Sunday. And if somebody comes out sounding like a, a, a child from a Saturday morning cartoon. You know, or, or an extra from The Simpsons, then that detracts from that because that sort of reminds you that you're listening to a fake story and not getting sucked in and, and immersed in it. Yeah, the first time that I listened to Infection, I caught the first three episodes at once, and uh, I was rooting around in Micro Center for probably an hour and a half while I had my iPod on. I didn't even notice it, but I was like scratching at my arm, and <laughs> I, I can't go back in there now. I just, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a few people, a few people have, that's been a, a huge compliment as a writer. I've had gotten a lot of email from people saying that once they heard the book, first few scratches or itches that they had really kind of, kind of freaked them out. And then I've been getting, um, it's been getting even better. I got a couple of emails from people who had dreams about the ancestors. They had nightmares. They had gotten uh, probably like 10 or 12 an infection of people who have woken up terrified because of what they've been listening to in the book. And it's something that's funny. The emails are all like, I can't really put my finger on it, but I just dreamed that there were these things growing out of my body. And uh, I wa some of the people even dreamt they were the main character. So, I mean, that's great. That, that's where I know that I, I'm telling a great story. I'm really getting into people's subconscious, getting into their memory, where they're, they like it so much and it's on their thoughts so much that they're actually having nightmares about it. Oh, yeah. I used to love going to Micro Center to root around in the return bins just to see uh -huh. if there was anything that I wanted, and I can't walk in there anymore. So, uh, you know, score one for <laughs> you, man. That one definitely got straight into my subconscious and latched in with little sharp teeth. Excellent. But, uh, well, just wait for the end of infection. You haven't seen nothing yet. Dude, I thought I knew where it was going. I was contemplating body count because kind of toward the end of Ancestor, I was just drooling to see who was going to die next and exactly in what perverted way they were going down. That was such a trip. This one, I just, I can't figure out where it's going. I don't think anybody can figure it out. It's, 
it's a real, the end of it, I think, is a real shocker. And it's a low body count, but the, the quality, I would say the quality of the deaths are far higher than anything else. Uh, the, there's going to be some just spectacular finishes for a few of the characters in this. Cool. I do have to ping you. I'm, I'm going to try and not let any spoilers out for Ancestor, even though it's uh, been out, in case there are reader, uh, readers, listeners of mine who haven't listened to it yet. But okay. there, there's a particular vehicle. There are many vehicles in Ancestor that carry multiple people, and there's one of them that crashes. Quite a large number of people, it's like four or five, I think, die when, uh, when that vehicle crashes. I kind of thought that you were wimping out there instead of finding more interesting ways for them to be ancestor chow. <laughs> the ancestors fun because there's two villains. There's there's the ancestors who and, and they're not the ancestors aren't villains in their mind. I mean they've got to eat. If they don't eat, they die. So right. they're one set of antagonists. And then there's the human villain, and the human villain in a lot of ways is far worse than the ancestor villains, because the human villain's doing it all for the money and because he's pissed off that his daddy didn't give him more attention as a kid, and he's a real vile individual. So you have to compare the body count between the between Magnus, the human, who's causing problems, and the ancestors. And I think, actually, I think Magnus comes out on top of that. So he, uh, he is responsible for the demise of that plane, and all of those body counts go chalked up to his record. Ah, uh, see, I I also again that that's also it's it's also the effort to keep keep you guessing. I mean, you're reading Ancestor, you know damn well it's a monster story. Right. You know damn well that people are going to get eaten. I mean, it's not there's no way to pull the wool over someone's eyes in one of these books, and so you know what's coming in some regards. So as a writer, have to find different ways to to surprise you, and that's one of them. I mean, most people probably read that. And we're listening, okay, this plane is going down, and then all these people are going to be out on the and the ancestors are going to get them. And that, that's not what happened. You lost a lot of people all in one fell swoop. So it caught some people off guard. It really did catch me off guard. I was hoping they were going to die by other interesting means. We'll come right back. I want to talk to you about science, but first we're going to take a break. Good news, everyone. Several years ago, I tried to log on to AOL, and it just went through. We're online. www.balticonpodcast.org Let the Balticon Podcast take you inside the minds of the people who make science fiction happen. Get the scoop on what's happening in science fiction from authors, techies, and scientists. We guarantee that you'll be entertained and enlightened. The Balticon Podcast. Great interviews with the people who make science fiction happen. Authors, fans, and honest-to-God scientists. And we play music at the end. Search for Balticon in iTunes or visit us at www.balticonpodcast.org. If copper feel I must... Then Copperfield, I shall. If you're looking for world-class podcast fiction, PatioBooks.com has it. At PatioBooks.com, you'll find 40 titles to choose from, including classics such as Earthcore, The Pocket and the Pendant, Moravi, and Spherical Tomy, plus new fiction like Singularity, The Tenth Cow, the short story anthology Voices, and dozens more. Dig sci-fi? Patiobooks.com has it. 
Fantasy? Patiobooks.com has that too. Comedy, thrillers, supernatural horror, historical fiction. Patiobooks.com has it. Best of all, every title is free, and you receive personalized feeds, allowing you to download new chapters whenever you like. So when you're searching for intense, top-notch fiction, bebop over to Patiobooks.com. Patiobooks.com has it. Say something, anything. Test one, two, three. Anything but that. And we are back. We are talking with Scott Sigler, the author and podcaster extraordinaire. His novels include Ancestor, Infection, and Earthcore. We're going to talk a little bit more about the science that was uh, used in those books. Great. I want to talk about the opening chapter of Ancestor, which I think was the scariest fiction that I have ever heard in my life. Where you, really? Yeah. Wow, that's excellent. You, you give an end-of-the-world scenario that is so realistic for everything that's going on today, and you talk about, I think it's chimeras, yes. animals with human genes, and how some virus has figured out how to jump from one species to another, and the human race has absolutely no defense against this. Yeah, that, I mean, you have to look at the history of life on the planet to realize that there have been cataclysmic events that have come close to wiping out a lot, you know, the majority, if not all, of life, and yet every time that happens, the few survivors somehow adapt to environments and niches that have been left vacant due to this cataclysm, and then they flourish because they're in an area that has no competition, and they're able to go through a population explosion and fill that niche, the old, the old line that nature abhors a vacuum. And what some people are concerned about is the xenotransplantation is an actual science. People are working on how do we create animals that have organs we can transplant into people, you know, baboon hearts, pig livers, etc. The big problem with that is when you take something from a different species and put it into a human body, 99% of the time the human body understands that the protein coating on that and the, the chemicals coming off of that piece are not self, they're not human, so your own immune system attacks it. Even though your immune system being automaton, if it attacks that transplanted heart, you're going to die, your immune system is going to die, it, it doesn't make any difference. The immune system still attacks it. So with xenotransplantation, the science is how do we put certain human proteins into animals so that they're coded correctly so that when I take that baboon heart and I put it into a human, the human body recognizes that as self. So that's something that's been going on, and there's a great book on it. I can't remember the author, but it's simply called Xenotransplantation. You can go, go to Amazon for that. That was a big part of the research for Ancestor. But when you move those organs over, you're, there's no way to get rid of all of the dormant viruses and the bacteria, et cetera, that are in that organism. You can't put it through a bath or a filter to clean it out. There's always going to be native material in that heart, for example. You bring that heart over, you put it in a human, and now you're in a situation where there's all of these innate viruses, bacteria, et cetera, that are in a brand-new environment. It's a new world. It's a universe-sized world as far as the virus is concerned. And the concern is that sooner or later, one of those viruses is going to adapt to its new environment. So if you, especially this becomes a mass market operation where there's thousands of people getting pig livers, sooner or later, one of those little viruses, one of those pig livers is going gonna, is gonna to be able to, quote, unquote, jump species because it's already in a human body. So a virus 
that codes for flu in pigs and that we may have no protection against, if that suddenly adapts to be able to infect the larger cells in the human body, now you're, you're looking at a nuclear weapon right there. You've got a virulent virus like a flu virus for which our bodies don't recognize it and there's no back coding in the human species to go out and take care of this. And, uh, you know, that's what they think happened with the swine flu back in the 20s, that when 40 million people died worldwide, that it was just as simple as one virus jumping species from one to the next. And that's what we also have with AIDS and Ebola. Those are viruses that have been able to jump species that have native defenses against it and go on to affect humans. So with everything that's happened so far, it's been a very gradual process. But with Ancestor, in the beginning of the book, we sort of take that to the next level. I mean... Cold and flu viruses, if we had no defenses against them, would easily have the capacity to wipe out every life on the planet in a matter of months. It's just a matter of who's going to get infected when. And that's what happened in the beginning of Ancestor. They're working on their xenotransplantation. They've been successful. They're putting animal parts into humans, a virus jump species, and it replicates so fast and so virulent that it just wipes out this whole medical complex. So the, that is a scary concept. And the science behind it is very real. It definitely could happen. And that's sort of what people are saying is happening with the bird flu. They're very concerned because there's a strain of flu that we don't have any natural defenses against, and it's expanding very quickly because it's being carried by birds because yep. they can move a lot faster than we can in a regular situation. On an earlier episode of the ADD cast, we actually had a conversation about the bird flu one of my co-hosts is very religious. Unfortunately, he's unable to defend his religion all that well, but he made a statement, I believe, to the, the effect of the only reason that the bird flu isn't here is because people are praying and God is defending people. And Well, if God was defending the people, he just would make the bird flu happen in the first place. Exactly. And there are thousands of people who are actively out there fighting the bird flu in the streets and the poultry markets and the way they eat poultry and deal with poultry in Asia is changing radically right now in Korea, China, and Japan, all because of this bird flu. They buy them live, take them home, let them roam around the kitchen, the, the apartment for a couple of days, and then butcher them there. In the U.S., we buy it frozen, mostly. They're going to be eating it frozen because this is the source of the worldwide bird flu. They now understand that they have to make a radical cultural change so that this kind of virus doesn't happen because this particular, what is it, H5N1 or something, uh, is the, right. the, the current bird flu, has the potential to be another swine flu and mm-hmm. wipe out tens of millions, if not billions of people if it learns to jump species. So it's, it, it's a very, yeah, it, very scary it thing. It's, it's definitely a threat. I mean, I don't think unless the overall conditions on earth degenerate, I really don't think we'll ever see anything like we had with the swine flu. I mean, we had science and medicine were at, a, at the highest level they'd ever been when that stuff hit, but it just wasn't comparable to what's going on today. You know, the ability to isolate populations, to get immediate medical attention to, to large numbers of people, I mean, it, 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 could, it could potentially be very bad and a lot of people could die, but I think, personally, I just don't think it's going to happen to that level. When we were at the height of the bird flu scare back in the late fall or early winter, I had flown into San Francisco airport, and there was uh, an Asian man. He just had a little bit of a cough. It was probably an allergy or something, 
but he coughed in the general direction of the water fountain. And I was, mm-hmm. I was just about to step up to the water fountain. And I looked around me, and there were tens of thousands of people crossing the planet, going through San Francisco Airport. I just said, there's no way in hell I am drinking from that fountain today. Because <laughs> I think that's one of the things I actually touch upon in the beginning of Ancestry 2 is the transmission vectors now are a whole different ballgame than they were before. If we did concoct something that we had no defense against, and all it really takes is one infected person getting on an airplane and passing through an airport, and it would take a highly contagious, I mean, a highly contagious airborne virus that has somewhat of an incubation period of 24 to 48 hours so that people would be able to travel and pass by other traveling people yep. without showing any immediate symptoms. But you're right. I mean, if that was to happen, you could. It, it's an explosive vector-based exposure situation with all these people traveling back and forth. Yep. Even driving across country, you know, in, in three days you can cover several thousand miles. Yeah, but I, th- I think driving, you're not actually going to be sharing the same localized contained airspace with the same number of people. And when you're on an airplane, there's no filter system there to keep viruses out. If you got somebody that's really sick, you're going to be sick when you get off that plane. It's happened to Mm -hmm. me several times. That kind of thing just scares the crap out of me. Now, I want to jump over to the science that you start off infection with. Okay. You were talking about particulate matter coming down and landing on people and getting eaten by mites. What kind of research did you do? Because there was a lot of, seemed to be a lot of chemistry in there. Well, excuse me, a little cough there. I mean, those were some, some things that I found very interesting in science back when I wrote Infection and the germination of plant seeds and how, what, what, what chemicals have to be present, what conditions have to be present, and how does that work? How does a seed suddenly decide to turn on, for example, and start growing, especially seeds that considered like a, a lotus seed that can stay dormant for 1,500 years, and then conditions are right, then it will start to grow. So looking into that, that's sort of where I got the idea for infection. You know, for a seed to germinate, there has to be certain amounts of moisture, certain amounts of, of salinity, et cetera, certain chemicals present, and all of these chemicals have a natural reaction with the shell's outer coat. And it breaks the outer coat down in a certain way that allows oxygen to penetrate and other chemicals to come in, and then that's what trips the trigger. So this is all, this is all a chemically-based trigger system to get a seed to grow. So then I started to think with, with the infection, we have a lot of chemicals on our skin. There's certain heat, heat humidity, salinity, et cetera. There's all of these uh, check marks, if you will, on the human body that could trigger something that landed on us to grow and then burrow into us exactly like a plant burrows into the soil. And so just, just the concept, it was real simple. I just went into research how to seeds actually work and was able to translate that over into, and now all I got to do is translate the environment to replicate the environment of the human skin. And as for the Demodex folliculorum, the, the mite, it was just one of those happy actions. I was just reading one day on the Internet and came across this thing and saw a picture of a mite a really electron microscope blown up picture of a mite. And they're horrifying. They're the most horrifying-looking creatures you could ever see in your life. I mean, if you were to see one that was six feet tall, you'd crap your pants and scream like a little kid. <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd be heading for the hill. But they're so, they're, they're, they're microscopic. You have millions of them on your body. It's not like you can get rid of them when you scrub. They're, they're there. They're not going anywhere. And what they do is they just graze upon your dead skin. So 
is you're going through millions of skin cells every day. These things are just walking around getting a free meal. So they live on you. They're perfectly harmless, and they eat your dead skin. And I sort of put those two things together. Well, you know, because a lot of seeds, there's a lot of seeds that specifically fruit is grown to attract animals to eat it so that the seeds can pass through an animal's digestive tract. So, A, it transports the seeds to a new area. B, it is deposited in fertile soil, if you will, and see the digestive juices, and they break down the seed coat so that when the seed does come out, it's prepared to absorb all of these different chemicals and chemical signals that are coming in, so that's what tells it to grow. So that's kind of the same thing with infection. It's like, well, what's on a human that could cause these seeds to, to get modified? And there you go, the skin mite. So the skin mite eats the seed, that breaks the seed down, and what's my favorite line in all my books, from, this is from infection, and that's where the story begins, really, in a microscopic pile of bug shit. Yep, that that was a fantastic line. Thank you. Where are we going from here? What did you say the the name of the next book the next is? Next book is Nocturnal. Nocturnal. And that that's getting. I have a lot of problems with uh, the current current state of evolutionary theory when it comes to instinct. And there's a lot of you, there's a lot of animals when you look around look around in the environment, you know, especially the National Geographic Channel or all these crazy animals they show, where you're looking at all of these particular adaptations they have to their environment, and it's just too much to believe that several random things could happen to lead you up to this one level where all of a sudden, for example, um, the, the snapping turtle that can make its tongue actually look like a fish so that other fish come to check it out, or the boxer crab, which actually picks up sea anemones and puts them on its claws so that when it is threatened, it holds up its claws and it's got two giant sea anemones on its claws. So that threatens away a lot of predatorial fish and eels that would otherwise eat it. So there's a lot of things like these animals and more when you look at them, you're going, it's just, it, it defies imagination that random acts cause this certain physical adaptation or behavioral adaptation to happen. So that's sort of where Nocturnal is taking a look at, and again, taking all of these theories and putting them into humans and seeing what happens, is that I, I think that there are certain animals, certain mutated animals that have a mechanism, when they learn a new behavior, you know, it's almost Lamarckian in the theory, that that behavior is actually able to be passed on, a learned behavior, not a random behavior. Because a lot of these animals, everything makes more sense if you say, wow, one, one day there was a super smart crab, and it sort of was able to put two and two together. It's like the Einstein of crabs, and it figures out it puts this stuff on its claws. People are going to go away. Not, they're going to leave it alone. So looking at that and then starting to look into, this, look into the actual fact that we have pre-programmed memories. Every animal in the world is born with memories already in place. They're called instincts. You know? And Whatever you want to call an instinct, it's still a behavior that the brain has to process to make you act in a certain way. So there is, in your DNA, if you have a kid, in that sperm and that egg, when they get together, there's already coding in there to teach them certain things. They're born with certain, certain types of knowledge that we would call instinct. And in the animal world, you know, birds are born with the instinct how to make a nest. So they're actually born with engineering coding already in their brain. So my, my personal theory is that since we've already seen that this happens in nature, you are actually born with memories that are called instincts that cause you to do things, there's absolutely no reason that the reverse coding can't happen, that an animal can't 
learn a behavior, and then somehow that behavior is coded down at the germline level and passed on to the next, uh, the next generation. So that's what nocturnal is looking at, but it's not just behavior. It starts to get into um, phenotypes and genotypes as well and what the, what the thing actually looks like. So it's a, it's a, the big logical leap there is from a possible argument that we're able to sort of learn certain behaviors, and that's what instincts come from is a learned behavior translated into, into genetic material, is what happens if you have one of these super creatures, and it's a human, and it's a female, and she is actually able to manipulate the DNA of her own eggs, and she's able to breed asexually. And then you take it another step farther where she's mentally challenged and doesn't really know what's going on, and she sees visions and has nightmares and makes up all these creatures. Well, when she's doing this, she's actually affecting the DNA of her eggs, and in essence, she becomes a monster factory. Whatever she can dream up or whatever she hallucinates, she actually subconsciously modifies the egg and actually makes that thing become a reality. Sort so of like it's, it's a big, it's a big, a bit of scientific theory, and as I usually do, push it to a, a level just under ridiculous, yep. where and where it becomes entertaining to the reader. So nocturnal, that, that's the the background of nocturnal, and we'll see how it goes out, comes out. So after of, nocturnal. Everybody will be happy to know that Earthcore 2 will be out after, uh, after Nocturnal. Oh, we're going to Shiro Sheltel? Yep. Oh, yep. sweet. Taking all, all the survivors of Earthcore are back, and uh, that's going to be my first experience with recurring characters, and it's going to be very difficult to kill these people off. But uh, it's got to be done. I can't. Nobody gets a free ride. <laughs> nobody gets a free ride. It's a character in Scott Sigler novel. Your odds of making it out are probably not that great, and if you make it to book two, then you know you better have a big life insurance policy. Because I don't think you're going to make it. All right. Well, we're running out of time here. If you ever need a voice for one of your characters, we'll be happy to pitch in here. Great. Thank you. Actually, an infection. I had a contest in Ancestor to win a part infection, and one of and the winner actually sent me audio files with the dialogue, which I'm. In episode 11, which is coming up in infection, I'm actually putting in there. So this will be the big experiment. Can I have people record parts in other places and cobble it together? You started doing that with uh, Ancestor. You had Mike Menengay mm-hmm. and uh, Soccer Girl chip in. Those came out pretty yep. good. So uh, yeah, yeah, those turned out, those did turn out well. I would love to be uh, the victim of one of your monsters. <laughs> cool, cool. I'll get in touch with you for nocturnal then. All right, cool. Thank you very much, Scott Sigler, for joining us here on the ADD cast. Coming up next, we're going to have part two of our Fathers of the Podcast Novel conference interview. Stay tuned for that. I want to thank Scott Sigler one more time for being on the show and let you all know that today is my birthday and I'm trying to get this out as a birthday present to you. I'm in Corpus Christi and I'm looking at a uh, whole bunch of East Coast thunderstorms between me and the woman I love. So uh, I may be having a long, hard night getting back to D.C. to my wonderful Martha. you got to do what you got to do, and this is work. Check the blog site if you're really interested in seeing what I've been doing. That's addcast.net. And uh, I'm going to jump right into Fathers of the Podcast novel conference interview. And after that... I'm going to play you a little song, and then uh, I'm going to publish. So, happy birthday to me. I am 40 years old. I've officially reached the age that I no longer can trust myself. 
but that's life. I will uh, talk to you all later. You can leave us comments and do all that other stuff that you normally do at the website, addcast.net. And we are back with part two of our three-part episode with the three Fathers of the Podcast novel, T. Morris, Scott Sigler, and Mark Jeffrey. We're all back. Hello. Hello. Yes, we're here. So where were we? We were talking about serialization. Uh, and oh, yeah. and uh, I think uh, probably the oldest one that I can think of that, that was at least available in the bookstore was the uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings as as done by the BBC. And you want to get if, – if you actually want to go look for these things, you want the BBC version of the Lord of the Rings and the PBS, uh, the NPR version, the, the public radio – the U.S. version of The Hobbit. Because the, 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 if, you, if you get the opposites of those, they suck ass. If you get the ones I'm telling you, they rock. More than audiobooks, I would say. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I've actually found uh, I, I, I kind of lumped them in together for a while, um, just because uh, I was doing a lot of really long car trips and living on audiobooks, and uh, I I got a hold of the I, I had been doing this drive from from D.C. to Cleveland for like eight weeks. And this is an eight-hour drive, so I was I was living on audiobooks, literally. And I go up to Cleveland, I hit the used bookstore, and I find after like eight or nine weeks of doing this, I got down to everything they owned, everything they had. I had listened to, except for L. Ron Hubbard's Battlefield Earth. <laughs> You're hard up, buddy. <laughs> Dude, if you ever want to listen to something that w- will make you laugh your fucking ass off, it, especially yeah, comedy, I can see that. Especially if you've listened to a lot of audiobooks where you get one, you know, you get Gates McFadden, who was Doctor Crusher on Star Trek: Next Generation, trying to do the voice of Worf, which she can't do. Um, <laughs> you know, the, these hor- horrible bad readings by some of these people. Um, you get L. Ron Hubbard's Battlefield Earth, and there are no less than 60 different actors doing voice oh work on God. this thing. Is John Travolta doing any of them? No, I think this oh was pre it. It was an alien and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, I think it was the fact that we were all doing our own readings, too. But basically, because we were so non-famous and poor, we couldn't afford to hire someone to do it for us. So we all started reading it ourselves, and that's what really had a connection with the people listening to the books, too. It wasn't just some schmuck phoning in a performance by reading the book and doing crappy voices. It was me who wrote the book doing crappy voices, and it made all the difference in the world. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know... Um, actually, T has got, like, you know, T, you're a professional actor, right? I mean, yeah, you've but, actually been trained, and you've done Shakespearean stuff. Correct? Yeah, but, you know, I mean, people are saying, well, well, yeah, the reason why T's, you know, T's the ringer. T's got the, the theatrical experience behind his... You know, honestly... Uh, you know, uh, there are people that went to school with me, and trust me, they were bad actors too. So just because you go to school and study acting, and and yeah, and, and even study Shakespeare, it doesn't necessarily make you a great actor. I mean, she's. I, I still remember seeing Kevin Klein do Hamlet um, on um, on the PBS, and I, I nicknamed it Hamlet the Musical because Kevin Klein sung most of his lines. Frailty, thy name is woman, and I was like. Kevin, pull the stick out of your rectum, and please, for the love of God, respect the iambic pentameter. But, but, but seriously, I think I think one of the um, 
one of the things that that uh, that Paul S. Jenkins of the Rev Up Review said about all three of our books. Because uh, I, I, do you guys listen to uh, Paul S. Jenkins? Uh, I I haven't listened to him yet. Scott, I, have, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, I have. Okay. Did you guys hear the message that he was talking about when he was actually reviewing all three of our books at the same time? He said, I have – he said – let's see if I can do my, my, my Paulus Jenkins. I have both the print copies of Moravi, of Pocket Independent, and Earthcore. I also have the Podia books. And I find that when I read any of these books, I no longer hear my voice but the voice of the author's. And he just went on. How was that? Well, but but he he really nailed it. I mean, he basically said, I mean, you could you can't ask, you can't pay for a better promo than this. He said what he loves so much about patio books is that they're an enhanced audio experience because now you're hearing the story the way the author intended it to be, serialized yeah, with cliffhanger that's, that's, that's endings. Yeah. And uh, and then when he said that he hears our voices, it, it's kind of it's kind of cool when you think about it. That Paul S. Jenkins now has three more voices in its heads, and it's you, me, and Sigler. <laughs> <laughs> there are probably a lot of voices in there already if he's in this crowd. So what what do you guys think of that, Mark? Well, I think that yeah. Yep. Once it, once it's in there, once it's in there, you really can't get rid of it. I mean, you know, that's the, the voice of the author. And there's also the energy delivered, and we know the characters too. So it's it's um, it's encapsulated. It's one person's vision. It's not that somebody's coming in and giving their own artistic interpretation of the part and trying to say what's my motivation. And we know these characters inside now. We've lived with these characters in our heads and on the pages for three, four, and five years before these books even get finished. And so when we deliver the book, I mean, that's that's the way it's supposed to be delivered. Bad accents aside, that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I know that, um, I, I got two quick comments. I know that I gave Evo an early copy of The Two Travelers, and uh, he was telling me that he can't read Two Travelers now without hearing my voice um, from pocket, re- you know, basically reading the book to him in his own head. Um, and so, I want, I, so that's like the second time now I've heard that other than uh, Rebel Preview. And I and um, I, I want to add to this that when people ask me, uh, you know, I tell, I tell people about EarthCore and I tell people about Ancestor. And they say, well, uh, they, they say, well, you know, are the, are the books, uh, are the books, you know, are the books graphic? And I said, well, yeah, they, you know, y- you're not going to want your kid to hear this because they have some graphic violence and some situations. And lots and lots and lots of violence, and I do it. And that's exactly the way I say it because that's what I hear in my head <laughs> is Sigler doing that. <laughs> that is such yeah, a so great line. Copy of Infection to read, uh, like basically to review it. I think for the uh, for his upcoming quote now in progress podcast. Yeah. Um, and basically, when I was reading that, I could every time there was like uh, a character with a voice, all I could hear was Sigler. Sigler's voice doing the character. So I've actually experienced it from the other end now, too, as well. <laughs> How's that going, by the way? How's Infection going? I, I think between the three of us, I think Scott is the only author who has uh, actually got an active podcast in the loop. How's that going, Scott? It's going really well. Is I'm trying to gauge the stats here, but it's somewhere between twenty and 30,000 people a week listening to it, so it's just continued to build... Um, fortunately, I had the ability to keep doing books after EarthCore was done. So EarthCore, Pocket, and Pen and Moravia were all out. And then we all kind of finished roughly about the same time. 
Then I rolled into Ancestor, which I had finished, and then rolled into Infection. So it's just, uh, it, it keeps compounding and keeps driving people back to the old books, and um, hopefully it'll keep growing. We're way through Infection, and what I saw with both EarthCore and Ancestor was at about the, the 75% point is when the numbers really started to climb up. At least that happened with EarthCore, and then it happened with Ancestor. It just took a big jump. Because I think what Mark is saying is people who download the book when it's finished, there's a lot of people who hear about these things and they're just waiting until it's closer to the end so they can get it all done at once. So, um, you know, the goal with, the, the goal with Infection was 50,000 people listening to it each week. And uh, maybe we'll hit that, maybe we won't. We'll see. That, that would be real cool. So you are, you are the hardest working man in podcasting. Uh, watch, right. your, watch your step there, Fisher. Hold on a minute. <laughs> Hold on a minute. I just spent... I, just... I, I think with, with, you can't separate the podcasting and the fiction writing, because even though I'm doing... I'm podcasting books already. Mark has been busting butt on the two travelers. T's writing, knowing T's probably 15 novels at once. <laughs> you know, in each hand and a pen in each foot. Oh, and he's geez. just cooking away on those. So all, I think that's really... Mark, is all three of us, are continuing to try and build off the exposure we got off the initial podcast. I just spent all day finishing up a treatment for a sci-fi monster flick for Ancestor. And to get that done, obviously, you that into a movie. So, I mean, there's always That's something going on with all three of us who are working on these worlds we've created. And, you know, I mean, you know, you're absolutely right, Scott, because, I mean, you went straight into, um, you actually went straight into, uh, what was it? You went, you went into Ancestor shortly after EarthCore. And uh-huh. I know that when you were doing that, and I know Mark was knee-deep in The Two Travelers, uh, right after I finished Moravi, I launched Legacy of Moravi, and then right after I got home from uh, from, from Canada, uh, there was this little project that I was working on with Evo Terra, and it was a, a book on podcasting. You might have heard of it. Uh, in fact, um, I think you two might have gotten a mention in that book, if I remember correctly. But yeah, I mean... Was, in fact, you might be wearing the shirt right I now. I might be wearing the shirt right now. Um, Actually, wasn't wasn't I in the title of that book? What? Wasn't I in the title of that book? Uh, no, no. Eva was in the title of the book uh, <laughs> twice. I thought, I thought I was the dummy. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That's Mission Control again. <laughs> Evo just told <laughs> us what to do. I wouldn't say he's smart enough to do a patio book, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, oh. The, the arrogant bastard is kicking in. Okay, guys. Yeah, pour the beer. <laughs> pour the beer. And... Uh, and while T is pouring the beer, I think this is uh, is going to be a good point for uh, another break. And uh, I expect you all back here next week so we can finish part three of the Fathers of the Podcast Novel series of interviews. This is Paul Fisher. I want to thank T. Morris, Scott Sigler, and Mark Jeffrey one more time. And uh, I am running before the storm to get out of Corpus Christi and get home while it is still my 40th birthday. Of course, while I'm out of sight, apparently my server has gone down or some part of my infrastructure. So uh, I will uh, not be publishing today, which uh, kind of torques me off. I was hoping to get this out on June 23rd, my 40th birthday. Anyone who'd like to send me a birthday present, I'd really appreciate it. Send me an email, and uh, I'll let you know uh, where you can uh, direct the bars of gold. I'm going to wind up here with a song by Voltaire. It's called The Vampire Club. I heard it first on Jason Adams' Random Signal podcast, which uh, has massively improved. It's like a thousand times better than when he first started. Uh, The indie rock stuff, um, just he kicks ass. He's 
whatever he's picking for music is what I'm loving. So uh, here we go with Voltaire, and I'm going to get the hell out of here. And remember, before you do anything, that you can't control the stimulus, but you can control the response. Blood. The night the pirates came to the vampire club The leader was tall and snide and slim He looked like a gay Captain Morgan Well, he recognized the vampire from his school He did something that was most uncool He said, hey, everybody, see the fool in the cave His name is Bernie Weinstein and he's in the eighth grade Things were flying, capes were torn Hell hath no fury like a vampire scorn Number one rule in this game in a rush and Boris at the bar orders a bud and says it's just another night at the vampire club Missy lost a fang in the ladies room we all laughed and called a snaggle tooth D was mad cause he broke his cane and he flushed his contacts down the drain there was so much angst after the fight Vlad and Akasha broke up that night some rivet heads danced in a puddle of goo That used to be father you-know-who Fangs were flying, capes were torn Hell hath no fury like a vampire scorn Number one rule in this game Never call him by his real name Wigs were pulled, top hats were crushed My pointy boots in a rush And Boris at the bar orders a bud And says it's just another night at the vampire club Always upside down, dressed in black from toe to head, singing Dalla Gossie, still I'm dead. A gaggle of the gods is a peaceful sight, would do anything to avoid a fight. But if you really want to see some gore and blood, wait till the ravers come to the vampire club. Bangs were flying, capes were torn, hell hath no fury like a vampire scorn. And the number one rule in this game, never come by his real name. Were pulled, top hats were crushed. My pointed boots in a rush, and Boris at the bar orders a bud and says it's just another night at the vampire club. Farpoint Media, powered by Podango.